everybody, and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. You out there, Dan? I am. Hey, Brian. How's it going? Hey, good. The cherry blossoms are in bloom. We're here in spring. And just like we always do, we've both watched a movie that we want to talk about. This is actually our first one by Steven Spielberg, because today we are covering his Abraham Lincoln biopic from 2012, simply titled Lincoln. What was your familiarity with this one going in, Dan? Tell me, I've never heard of the Steven Spielberg guy, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, I've never seen this. It's one I've always wanted to see. Uh, I knew it was like a biopic, but more so a... We'll talk about this, I think. Uh, not a direct sort of biopic, more of a um, almost political drama. Mm-hmm. I had heard that and that it was generally among more revered of Spielberg's late era pictures. Um, and then it's got a, a noteworthy lead appearance by Daniel Day-Lewis. Right. So you make some great points. It's... Like, if it's a biopic, it's a very, very narrow slice of time. So it lets you get more into the nitty-gritty. So the way that you characterize it as a political thriller, that seems apt. Um, and of course, yes, Daniel Day-Lewis picked up the Best Actor Oscar for his role as Lincoln. But this cast is enormous. It's stacked. It's redonkulous. And... And the way it's structured is like a person will walk in and it's it's almost like a sitcom. You know, everybody clap for Kramer <laughs> coming through the door because suddenly, you know, James Spader is in the movie. Yeah. Like, oh, Adam Driver, where'd you come from, buddy? <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt, what? Yeah, this has got to be pretty early for Adam Driver, too. He may not have been anybody. He may not have been Adam Driver yet. Yeah, he had been cast in uh, in Girls, the HBO show which is where I and I think many other people got to know him. But this was like in girls first year, I think, maybe second year. Yeah, it was pre Kylo Ren by several years. Yeah. Hey, what got uh, more Academy Award nominations, this or Hamburger Game? (laughs) Yeah, no uh, crossover between the two, unfortunately. That's too bad. Man, how long do you think before video essays and things on YouTube start getting Oscar noms. You know, they said it wouldn't happen with streamers. Spielberg himself was like, you can't nominate a Netflix movie for Best Picture when they got nominated for uh, Roma, which Mm. is a movie that I just watched in the past week. I thought it was pretty good. Now, of course, the streamers dominate the nomination season. Yeah, that's right. In like five short years. Coda won Best Picture. I think... You know, there's always a handful of the ones are, are streamer films, although I think they still have to have a do they still have to have a theatrical release? I think. They yeah. Do. Yeah. Some kind of pittance, a technicality. But I wanted to talk about why I picked this movie for this time of year. Uh, okay. Would you care to hazard a guess, Dan? Um, well, most of this takes place in the winter, but it jumps ahead to April at the end. Is that when he was shot in April? Yes. So. You'll remember, perhaps, longtime listeners, that a couple Aprils back, yeah, April 2021, we covered Titanic because Titanic struck the iceberg on April 14th and sank in the early morning of April 15th. Well, listeners, Lincoln was shot 
on the night of April 14th, and he died in the morning of April 15th. Mm. It just so happens to be a very happening uh, historical time, April does. Uh, that is when the Civil War began and ended was in April. Also, the American Revolution kicked off with the battles of Lexington and Concord on April 19th, which that's a whole kettle of fish because April 19th, celebrated in Boston as Patriots Day. Well, I have seen in the last week or so a couple true crime like dramatization documentaries on Netflix because 2023, April 19th, it's the, let me think, I've got to get this right, 30th anniversary of the Waco siege coming to a, a I think that's when it ended. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, when the government like bulldozed it or whatever, the, and it all went up in flames. Right. And then, of course... Uh, extremists like Timothy McVeigh carried out the Oklahoma City bombing April 19th, a couple years later. And then Columbine was April 19th, a couple years after that. Uh, and more of a broad historical sense, I think April has a lot going on because it's like the winter has ended. It's when things thaw out and so... This has been called the campaign season. It's like wars kind of have to go on hiatus for a little while over the winter. I, I'm sure they were talking about this, too, with uh, the things going on in Ukraine. You know, it's like that part of the world, especially, it gets so cold, you can't really fight in the thick of the winter. So when people carry out offensives, like you see all the headlines nowadays, they're gearing up for the offensive. That's, that's what happens in April. Oh, also talking patriots day 10th anniversary already of the boston bombing that's where i thought you were going to go with that when you were talking about an anniversary because i was guessing that was about 10 years ago man i can't believe it was 10 years ago though time flies yeah hard to fathom and so yes lincoln it seemed apropos uh also it's the 10-ish anniversary of this movie i guess technically 11 but uh, it came out my senior year of college, and that is my personal connection to the film. Uh, well, one degree removed is that this is the highest profile movie that somebody I know is in. And that's because my playwriting professor at William and Mary senior year guy named Daniel Day Lewis, not Daniel no, Day kidding. Lewis, unfortunately, he's a guy named Robert Ruffin, Professor Robert Ruffin. And one day he kind of abruptly canceled class and like the week before or a couple days before he had shaved his facial hair in this weird, like archaic style. And then he said, I'm going to be in a movie on Tuesday down in Richmond. So no class. And he was a little cagey about what the project was, but uh, somewhere along the line, somebody deduced that it was Lincoln because this was mostly filmed in Richmond, Virginia. Okay. And then, you know, we didn't really know how prominent his part was going to be. He's not Joseph Gordon-Levitt or anybody like that. Uh, but I heard through the grapevine that he would have lines in the film. And so then when I went to see it in, you know, later in 2012, I'm like, oh, how, am I going to be able to see him? Am I going to recognize when he's on screen? And actually, he turns out pretty prominent. He gets this one big pivotal scene, 
where he talks directly to Lincoln. So pretty cool. Oh, wow. Really? That is cool. I hope you'll shout it out when we get there. Yes. Well, he plays the director of the telegraph office. Oh, so in the scene with Driver. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one scene where Driver's there and then later Lincoln comes back to the telegraph office and it's like just him and Adam Driver. So Adam Driver okay. gets two scenes. But the first scene where they're like introducing the telegraph department. Yeah. Uh, Professor Ruffin walks Day-Lewis and like the Secretary of War into the telegraph office and he's like, reports coming in from the front, Mr. President. Mm, I remember that now. That's him. That's cool. Yeah, so he, you know, he came around the corner and just like all the other people that you clap for in the movie, it's like, yeah, there he is. <laughs> for you, an even bigger deal. Did you ever have famous professors? Not really. Yeah. Uh, what about you? Anybody famous as like a guest lecturer even? Um, so I, I went to the University of Virginia where Larry Sabato is um, a professor, a lecturer, and he's a well-regarded uh, political analyst and political writer, uh, Larry Sabato. And I have sat in on his lectures. I didn't take his class, but I sat in on two of his lectures. And then my wife actually took a poetry course by, or it might have been literature, I think it was poetry, on by Nikki Giovanni, who is a, a very famous black woman poet, name dropped by Kanye West when he's listing great black voices. So, you know at least uh, pretty well recognized. And she, when there was the big shooting at Virginia Tech, uh, which is where my wife went and where Nikki Giovanni teaches, she was the one who gave kind of the inspiring speech that made the front of Washington Post and stuff uh, a few days later. That was in April too. April 16th, Virginia Tech shooting. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I was there, by the way. Didn't have that one on the list. But, yeah, that's interesting about the lecturers. And now that you mention it, uh, a few episodes back, I don't remember exactly when, but we were talking about who was the most famous person that you've, like, interacted with directly. And I think I said Defense Secretary Robert Gates, because he got hired for some administrative position at William & Mary, where I went to undergrad. So I spoke with him briefly. There was this event where I gave the commencement speech and he was also given a commencement speech. And so we sat and we talked in the back room for a while. Smoked cigars in the parlor. <laughs> but having thought back to that episode recently, I remembered that probably now the most famous person that I have interacted with was Ken Jennings, who hosts Jeopardy now. Oh, yeah, yeah. He came and read questions at the National Academic Quiz Bowl Tournament in Chicago in 2006 when I was in high school. And so the TJ team, we went to that tournament and Ken Jennings was there. And did you talk to him? I did a little bit. I asked him for his autograph and he said he didn't have a pen. Rats. And for a long time, I was disappointed and didn't like Ken Jennings very much. But then I read his book. It's called Brainiac. It's like his memoir. And he specifically mentions that event. And he says that TJ had very good It's Academic teams. Nice. So it's like, okay, beef with Ken Jennings is over. <laughs> Bury the hatchet. Exactly. I can see you photoshopping yourself, shaking hands with Ken Jennings. <laughs> 
And so, yeah, of course, this was a must-see film for me. We've talked a little bit on the podcast before about our differing views to biopics, uh, but I'm almost glad, Dan, that you saw it as something other than a, a run-of-the-mill biopic, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. Because I tend to like them. I, I think we've talked a little bit about why. It's just, you know, it's a crash course. You learn, like, the bullet points, uh, which... When you're covering like a big span of time, often things are glossed over and condensed and that's all you really get. And it ends up feeling like fake. And so I can see that. And formulaic. It's like you have the forced in drama, too. That's kind of what bothers me is different subsets of biopics are worse. Like musical biopics are the worst for it. We talked a lot about it with uh, with Walk Hard. I don't know if that was the same time we talked about Ray. Yeah, that was the same time we talked about Ray and Walk the Line. But musical biopics, I tend to find insufferable because they have the same handful of beats they always, always hit and like always play up the drama of it. And sometimes somebody's life is just not that cinematic. They can be an interesting person, but they're not going to have like a three act structure to their life, you know. But this this one definitely eschews the the typical biopic structure. It still has a couple of biopic things. But I would say it has more other Oscar Beatty things in it if you're going to criticize formulaic stuff in it. But I, I I definitely wasn't too put off by it being based on a real person or whatever. Yeah. Lincoln never sings. At least not in this one. <laughs> he, do, he doesn't have a pill habit to break before the big concert, his comeback concert. Man, if only. I would watch that movie too. I think I mentioned not too long ago that... This was the same year that they made the Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter movie. And I like that one. That actually has more biopic type stuff because it <laughs> covers like the whole gamut of Lincoln's life. It like incorporates the Lincoln-Douglas debates and like courting Mary Todd and just different eras in his life. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, his friendship with this guy named Joshua Speed, who is like his good friend throughout his life. And he's actually in this movie, but I... He's just like very briefly addressed, but he's like the sidekick all throughout Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Gotcha. And yeah, a lot of familiar faces. Tommy Lee Jones is here pretty prominently. David Costabile from Breaking Bad. And we'll just kind of shout these people out when they come up in the story, because that's really how they're introduced. It's like they there's this beat where they show up. Mm hmm. And the bulk of the film takes place in January of 1865. So Lincoln has been reelected in November of 1864. I'm also going to say this is like a very dense plot. It's got a lot of people, a lot of story threads, and it's all about uh, like people going back and forth with how they're going to vote. It's long, too. It's two and a half hours long. Yeah, so we're going to try to paint the recap in broad strokes as best we can. The basis of the film was a book by historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, which was called Team of Rivals. And the theme of the book, which comes through in the film, is that people can be on the same side politically, but still have beef with each other and mm. grievances and little nitpicky things that set them apart like a big part of the story is like different factions within the republican party in the 1860s 
Yeah. Yeah, that is a major theme. I did think it was weird. I don't know if I've ever seen a adaptation credited this way. It said like in big letters, based in part on. It's just like a weird uh, phrasing. It's like, why not just say based on? I mean, you're never going to have anything that's 100% based on, but based in part on, I think is what it said. Right. I even think it's kind of interesting when like it's historical events. Do you even really need to say that it was based on somebody's book about them? Based on life, man. Yeah. You don't own life. You can't copyright Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> but this has all of Spielberg's usual team behind it. You know, John Williams music, uh, the same editor as usual, Michael Kahn. It's got cinematography by Janusz Kaminski. I want to talk about Kaminski a little bit at some point here. And... Uh, the Williams score in this one is a little different than the usual John Williams score, and I think it's meant to evoke uh, Aaron Copeland's Lincoln Portrait composition. Mm, I I noticed it too. It wasn't quite as like romantic and um, surging. It was a little more mournful and restrained, I thought, than the typical Williams. Do you want to talk about Kaminsky now or in a little bit? Yeah, so uh, Kaminsky um, has done pretty much every movie of the second half of Spielberg's career. I don't know exactly when their partnership started, but um, I've mentioned uh, one of the film blogs I like to follow is called Kinemalogue. It's um, Hunter Allen is uh, someone I've, I've met up with online and um, we trade comments on each other's blogs and he writes these excellent reviews over at kinemalogue.net. And he has reviewed every single one of Spielberg's movies and he talks a lot about Kaminsky's work and he pointed out a lot of things that you always see Kaminsky do. And to the point that like, and now it distracts me if I watch a Spielberg movie, cause I'm looking for the Kaminsky things. Oh, interesting. So, what did you notice? So the number one thing he does is he has, um, sources of light that appear to be diegetic and perhaps even natural, like windows is the big one. And they get, hugely backlit so it causes like this big visible stream of light coming in and it's in like every other shot of this of lincoln you have some like window or street light or something that like casts like a huge visible thing of light yeah definitely a lot of scenes where somebody's sitting by a big window and they got one side of their face lit by the sun rays yeah shaft of light coming in that's like his his biggest one but he also he desaturates the colors in a certain steely way frequently. Bridge of Spies is over the top with the, the desaturation. Um, this one goes in and out of it, but it kind of makes sense because it's like winter in D.C. and it's kind of cold and snowy and stuff. But uh, definitely a little more brown than I would have liked in, in the visual profile. But it, I, I mean, it's, you know, Kaminsky's a good cinematographer overall. He has some quirks, but I think he's a good cinematographer. And the screenplay was by the playwright Tony Kushner, who has also done a lot of work with Spielberg. I guess he's written most of his movies since Munich. Yeah, uh, he did West Side Story and Fablemans, at least. Um, I don't know how many other he's done beyond that, but um, Fablemans was interesting because Spielberg actually got a full writer credit. So they they it's only like the third time in his career that he's been one of the listed writers on his own movies was Fablemans, which made sense because it was... Um, 
a semi-autobiographical story. Yeah. I also felt like the dialogue was kind of odd in that one. I just watched it. I agree. Like the way the kid talks to the mom. It's like, I don't know that you would talk to your mom that way, but. I think the script is kind of wonky in that one. That's the only thing that actually holds that one back for me. I, I like the filmmaking in it a lot, but yeah. But uh, one other thing about Fableman's kind of interesting is the guy who played the dad I was thinking, wait, I've seen that guy before in a movie, but what was it? Paul Dano, yeah. And it was There Will Be Blood, where he co-starred with Daniel Day-Lewis. So it all comes together. Oh, there you go, yeah. But yes, we're here in January of 1865. Lincoln was recently re-elected, but the period then between election and inauguration was considerably longer presidents weren't inaugurated until march back then that would get changed by the 20th amendment which changed inauguration day to my birthday january 20th so it's the 20th and it's the 20th amendment so easy to remember just like the 22nd amendment set the two-term presidential limit hmm Others among the amendments can be harder to remember, but you may remember that the 13th Amendment was the one which abolished slavery. And that's what Lincoln has cooking in his brain, is he wants to pass the 13th Amendment. He says he wants to do it before he's inaugurated, but I think an even bigger factor is he wants to pass it before the Civil War ends. Because after the Civil War ends... If things go according to plan, you know, the Confederate states are going to come back into the Union and they'll be able to do pesky things like vote again. <laughs> and it's it's a really interesting dynamic that gets explored here in the movie. It's a very wonky movie, which I mean in the sense of like a political wonk. It's like about policy and like votes and timing of things and who's going to do what and get what out of it. The the interest, the two interesting dynamics are inauguration. So the Republicans who it's confusing because now Republicans are the conservative party in the modern political landscape and the Democrats are the more progressive party. And it's flipped here. The Republicans are the progressive party and the Democrats are the conservative party, but the Republicans have won more seats in the most recent election. So if they can get to inauguration, then they, sh it would be easier to pass the amendment. But also there's the lingering end of the war, like you said. So they're like battling this timing of these two things. One, the the southern states coming back in and obviously most likely voting against abolition. And similarly, like having that be on the terms of the table, using that as a bargaining chip in some way. And then also like, oh, but you have this change of guard coming in too. So it's just kind of very weird. And like I said, um, Inside baseball, almost. Uh, yeah, they say horse trading at one point. It's all about the personal interests and how can you appeal to what somebody wants for themselves over and above, like, their ideology. Right. It's, you know, hit them in the pocketbook, hit them in the heart, uh, less so than necessarily party lines. And, yeah, Lincoln's guys, his Republican buddies and co-workers they say hey let's wait a little while and then there's going to be more of us and then we'll actually have the votes that we need uh, 
funny role, pretty prominent by this character actor, David Costabile, who was on Breaking Bad. He played the nerdy lab assistant, Gale. Uh, he's here playing the put-upon sponsor of the amendment. Like, he's the guy who has to bring it up to the floor and say, let's vote on this now! And he's he's always very nervous and fretful. And he's like, I don't, I don't want to. Let's let's wait. And Lincoln says, no, you got to do it now. <laughs> because Lincoln points out that, like you said, a lot of the Democrats uh, did not get reelected. So they're in their lame duck periods. And soon they're not going to have their Washington jobs anymore. And Lincoln has got this new administration gearing up for his second term. And he's going to be able to give out a lot of jobs, appoint people to positions. And so to not be too unseemly and just go directly to them and say, I'll give you a job if you vote my way, they kind of have to do it through a back door. And so he has his secretary of state, Seward. Uh, you may remember him from your middle school American history class for uh, purchasing Alaska. Seward's Folly. Oh, same guy. That's interesting. Yes. Uh, so Seward goes and he rounds up these three lobbyists who are going to go grub for the votes. And these kind of seedy vote grubbers, the leader of the trio is James Spader. And like second behind him is Tim Blake Nelson. So fairly familiar faces, particularly James Spader. And they kind of serve as the comic relief in the movie. They always have gags as they're badgering these people who they think are likely to waver. I want to praise the editing in this movie because it gets to the point where you've got like four or five things going on and you're cutting back and forth between them and you got to kind of follow the story. And particularly anytime we cut to these silly lobbyists interacting with like some congressperson uh, well, there's a lot of back and forth because it's three guys courting like 12 Congress guys. And the way that it'll cut between the bits is often clever. Like uh, one guy gets rebuffed by a congressman and the congressman pulls out a pistol to shoot him. And like when the gun goes off, uh, it cuts to another scene of a different Congress guy who's eating lunch. And he's like cracking crabs with a mallet. And the other lobbyist is talking to him. So gunfire goes off hammer comes down and cracks the crab and uh michael khan is getting clever with his editing this did yeah. get an oscar nomination for editing but it didn't win but uh if you remember our chicago episode if a film has cool editing i'm gonna i'm gonna shout it out and uh, i will say i mean it's a combination of just the inherent interest of the material but also i think the editing it's a long movie. It was a lot longer than I expected. It's over two and a half hours if you include credits. And um, it moves pretty quickly. And I think that some of that comes down to the editing for sure. Like the way that it's able to juggle the, the subplots pretty well. Yeah. It's a pretty good way of dealing with all these characters and their individual motives. Uh, something that has struck me since the first time I watched it is like all of the Congress people. We spend a lot of time on the house floor, the house of representatives, and that like all of these people really lived. And when else have they ever been portrayed in a film? Like there's been a ton of Lincoln movies, but how many do you see representative Fernando Wood or uh, representative George Pendleton or James Ashley? Probably not too often. Yeah, it's probably pretty rare. 
Oh, yeah. And then at the end, there's the whole roll call and you get the names of like 100 congressmen. And I wonder if you told them someday you're going to be name dropped in a Steven Spielberg movie. They wouldn't know what any of those things are. (laughs) But they would probably be grateful for the idea of it. (laughs) Something I don't think I've said on the pod yet is there was a review on Letterboxd. And honestly, it might be sprinkled, like just spammed on different movies. I don't remember which movie I saw it on, but it was like, imagine showing this movie to a 9th century Viking. What would they even be able to understand? And you could just as easily say that about any film, but I like thinking about it. And yeah, times that we're not seeing the house floor and the grappling between the factions there. Uh, We are like in the White House with Lincoln and his cabinet or Lincoln and his family. So lots of people that we're keeping track of. And in the various discussions, we hear that, so he's got these lobbyists like courting Democrats who are lame ducks, but they also need complete unanimity from the Republicans. Like all the Republicans have to vote for the amendment. And that's not a sure thing because even within the party, there's different factions. I'm glad that you mentioned that back in the day, the whole thing was flip-flopped as... Flanders says (laughs) and like the parties were the opposite of what we think nowadays that we still call you know the GOP the party of Lincoln but it's like totally different ideology and I think the real big change happened in the 1960s when uh, Kennedy and especially Johnson embraced the civil rights movement I think prior to that it was that uh, yeah Democrats were the conservative party and Republicans, the Progressive Party. And so the result is that the discussion is kind of confusing to a modern ear because they are talking about radical Republicans who are the ones who are frothing at the mouths for not just abolition of slavery, but complete racial equality. And oh, what a radical idea. And then you've got what they call conservative Republicans who are actually the moderate, even-keeled ones who sometimes can reach agreements with the Democrats. Yeah, they're the centrists. Right. And there's this guy who has Lincoln's ear, whose name is Preston Blair. And I guess he was either the founder or one of the founders of the Republican Party. And this was very recent that the party was founded. Lincoln was the first Republican president. And so this guy is... You know, he's he's a kingmaker in some ways, and Lincoln has to kind of listen to his counsel. And this guy says, okay, Lincoln, I'm the OG Republican. I can marshal all the Republicans around this thing that you want and get them all to vote your way on the amendment, but you got to hear me out on something. He says, now, through back channels, I've been talking to the higher-ups in the Confederate government. And I think I could get them to sit down and negotiate the end of the war, basically, with you. They, you know, I I think they'd be amenable to surrender even, but they want to sit down. And if we do it now, A, the war will be over. You probably won't even need this amendment. But if they don't come to terms that you like or whatever, or they're not willing to meet 
then I promise if you just give me the opportunities to arrange this meeting that I will have everybody vote your way. Now, this is something that before this movie I had never heard of. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like a, an alternate path for the American Civil War. Right. Like a what if. And Lincoln doesn't really like this plan because he wants the amendment to pass and this is potentially going to short-circuit that. But to get the votes, he says, yeah, okay, Preston, we'll, we'll do this. You go and you set up this meeting and we'll, we'll hear him out eventually. But just make sure you get the votes because that's what I care about. Uh, meanwhile, the radical Republicans on the House floor, the ones who are super gung-ho about progressivism and racial equality, are led by an orator named Thaddeus Stevens. So I had heard this name before, but I didn't really know what he was about. He's played by Tommy Lee Jones of The Men in Black, of Two-Face, of several things. What do you know Tommy Lee Jones from? Well, you mentioned the big ones, but also uh, there's a legend that always goes around the internet where Tommy Lee Jones said to Jim Carrey on the filming of Batman and Robin, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. So to me, that's the most famous thing that Tommy Lee Jones has done is said, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. It's I'm going to get Google and get the word in right now. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't sanction any buffoonery in this movie either. Yeah, he said, I pulled up a chair and I said, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. Yeah, so <laughs> man, they should have written that into the movie. It's a good line. Yeah. I could see Two-Face saying that to the Riddler. But uh, you had called other characters the comic relief, and it's not exactly comic relief because it's kind of more cathartic because we obviously have a 21st century lens on this, and even the centrists come across as like totally ass backwards on racism and everything relating to slavery and race relations here. And so it is cathartic to have this one quote unquote radical who's just spouting like basic humans are made equal rhetoric. Um, and also not just doing it, but like slapping down the racists and even the moderates. But he also gets really funny lines. He's just got good put downs nonstop. And even though it's played more for catharsis than comedy, this is one of my favorite performances of the movie. One of my favorite parts of the movie is just anytime we're like, we're going to pause for two minutes and let Tommy Lee Jones get a terrific monologue where he just puts a smack down on the idiot Democrats and, and centrists. <laughs> Yeah, he gives some great speeches. This is a really talky movie overall. There's like a lot of sitting in rooms and delivering long monologues. And it really makes sense that it's by a playwright. Mm, okay. um, I mean, there's not a lot of like action-y set pieces that you would need anyway. We do have one battle scene at the beginning and then the aftermath of a battle at the end. Uh, but mostly, yeah, it's these different people espousing their viewpoints. And Tommy Lee Jones, especially, is portrayed as like a good speaker. Um, then on the other side of the aisle, the these racist, boo-hiss Democrats, uh, they have some good speakers, too. And the, the main one is this young up-and-comer guy, uh, Fernando Wood. And he is played by Lee Pace. And so that's what I, how I was thinking of him the whole time is Representative Lee Pace. <laughs> and what I know him from is he is great in this movie called 
The Fall by Tarsum. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's in one. a couple other things. Um, he was in uh, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies last year, which was a slasher, but it was more so a Gen Z satire about how privileged super online TikTok influencers can be insufferable. And it's kind of amusing when they backstab each other. But he was in that. He played kind of like the older hot boyfriend of one of the girls. <laughs> nice. Um, so, yeah, he'll stand up and give a diatribe about how man cannot make equal what God himself created unequal. And, you know, his guys like hammer on the table. And then Thaddeus will fire back with something like, you insufferable waste of air. And then all his guys... <laughs> thump on the table yeah you know these, this is back in the days of uh, brooks and sumner when you had congress people like hitting each other with canes so right. who knows if we're very far away from that kind of climate again but and it's interesting uh one thing i, I was thinking a little bit about is particularly for these rather compelling charisma of the ostensible bad guys of the movie um the racists the the democrats the I guess they're not Southern, but is you can play a bad person too good in a way that it messes with your career. Like the guy who plays Joffrey in Game of Thrones, it, I think it's a combination of he decided he didn't want to be in it anymore because he got a lot of vitriol for being really good at being really bad. Um, and like people are like, well, you're everybody's just going to see you as the little shitbag King Joffrey. That makes me think of, like, Javier Bardem. It's like, I, I wouldn't really see him playing anybody other than a scary guy. There's an actress named Colin Wilcox in To Kill a Mockingbird, and she plays uh, Mayella, who is the one who claims to have been attacked in the, the trial, the kind of white trash woman. And she was actually, like, extremely politically active in, during the civil rights movement for pro-civil rights, but she had played like, uh, you know, someone who's on the opposite side of that in To Kill a Mockingbird. And she said that she would often get like pelted with stuff when she was walking through these places where she was speaking and volunteering and stuff because everybody associated her with being the, one of the racists in To Kill a Mockingbird. Wow. On the subject of these long diatribes, uh, of course, Lincoln is at the center of the show. And he has a habit of telling stories. He'll get like a crowd of people around him and he'll launch into some anecdote. And that tends to be interesting. Often it's funny. Um, and even the people like they kind of lampshade it because yeah. characters start being like, oh, he's going to tell another story. <laughs> yeah, I was glad that they lampshaded it because then y you knew that the movie was in on the joke. It was almost like pointing out. A character quirk. It's not like not just a dramaturgical element. It's like a Lincoln always filters things through these goofy ass prairie parables that he likes to tell. <laughs> and I've noticed that like a couple of his lines have have stuck in my brain and I'll think of them in my day to day life. Like uh, at one point he's like, we need to do this now, now. And he does this. He like points at his guys with his hand. And I think of that. Now, now, uh, another is, he says, if you can look into the sands of time and tell which seeds will grow and which will not, 
speak then to me. And I think that's actually from the Bible. I think it's something that Jesus said, because I, I looked it up not too long ago, trying to remember where does that, where's the line come from where the dude says, if you can look into the sands of time and tell which seeds will grow. And I looked it up. I'm like, oh, it must be the Bible, I guess. And then I watched this movie. It's like, oh, of course, Daniel Day-Lewis said it in Lincoln 2012. That's, I bet Gavin could tell us if it's in the Bible and exactly where it is. Yeah. Yeah. Probably if we misspeak historically, there's a decent chance Gavin can correct us. He's, I've heard him reference American history a lot less than, well, certainly biblical history, but even international history. But we'll see if he calls us out on anything. Okay, fair enough. Lincoln himself seems like he was a pretty well-read individual, pretty knowledgeable. That's probably not too bold a claim. Yeah, that's actually one of my takeaways when I read um, enormous biography of Alexander Hamilton that the play was based on. One of my takeaways is that the founding fathers were all like ridiculously smart and just they went and they learned stuff. And there was a lot less material to learn at the time. You know, there were fewer books published, but they like read all the books. Like oh, I've read them all. I know all the ideas that are kind of out there and they all like went to university and did that in their spare time. And at least most of them, I mean, obviously some people were, uh, you know, not that way, but a lot of them were, were really smart. Yeah. I think pretty often about how, like just the level of diction has decreased. Mm. And I mean, I'm sure there's various contributing factors to that. Like you would think at least that the people who are running the country, particularly back in the day, like they were the educated ones. Um, whereas now, like a lot more of the population is literate. A lot more of the population is educated. Um, but at the same time, you just don't get turns of phrase like you get in the Declaration of Independence and things, mm -hmm. um, even in big level speeches that that officials make. I think that was one of the things that people gave credit to Obama for. Um, I mean, some of it was obviously his speechwriters, of course, but but he tend to bring some of that back. But you, I, I just watched Damien Chazelle's First Man. It's a biopic of Neil Armstrong. And so I was watching some Kennedy speeches and even Kennedy was really good. I mean, not quite so sophisticated in the exact diction he used, but pretty close and very persuasive order. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think Eisenhower was a really good speaker. Oh, really? Look up some Eisenhower speeches or uh, Truman, also quite a good speaker. Okay. Um, but Obama was definitely the best in our lifetime. And it's it's not very close. Yeah. <laughs> but listen to, yeah, listeners, go check out the Truman speech where he announces what the atomic bomb is. Like, that's a that's a crazy speech. Okay. He, he says, it is an atomic bomb. It is the basic force of the universe. The source from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war. And, yeah. Scary. More pertinent a little bit to this. Uh, in the last week, I read George Washington's farewell address for the first time. And... I would guess that's in the Hamilton book because it's in the Hamilton show, mm -hmm. uh, which is where I first became aware of it. But I like actually sat down and read it 
and I had never done that before. And it's crazy how prophetic it is. Really? It's like, we should not be allowed to have political parties because the parties will fight all the time and they will be used as, uh, like the, the party machinery will be used to allow autocrats to come to power. And just the, the whole thing is pretty interesting. There's, there's more than that. It's like the industrial north has tensions with the rural south, and I think that's going to go badly. <laughs> and yeah, just pretty prescient. Saw the way things were going. Right. So, yeah, a lot of these speeches uh, by Lincoln, by Day Lewis. I was trying to think this actually might have been the first movie I've seen all the way through with Day Lewis. I I'm going to have to look it up because I have not seen There Will Be Blood, but he does some really interesting things with his voice. That's what I most noticed is he's just got this very like uh, I'm trying to think what the right phrase is. It's not bizarre, but it's it's just like kind of intense. You can tell he's an intense dude. But also, like, it's got this kind of comfort to it as well. Just a very interesting texture to his voice that, like, pops off the screen. I was like, oh, who's this guy? Just makes you want to listen to what he's saying. And he also looks so much like Lincoln. They really did a good job of making him look like the portraits that you've seen. Definitely. Yeah, it's a good performance. And any Lincoln portrayal, I'm always struck that you know, we don't have any recordings of the real Lincoln, so we don't know what he sounded like. Some people say, actually, he had, like, an annoying voice. and hmm. uh, But, you know, I, I think we have an, an understanding of what Lincoln would, say, would sound like, should sound like, and I think uh, Lewis does a good job. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I like these, these stories that he tells. He has a good one. Um talking about uh like the revolution he, he brings up the revolution several times yeah ethan allen the one about the bathroom is that what you're thinking yep. of yeah that's another thing he says he's like come out you old goat that's <laughs> what ethan allen said when he seized fort ticonderoga <laughs> but uh lincoln gets like one-on-one -on -one time with a whole bunch of different people. Um, so you get some scenes where he's interacting with his wife, Mary Todd, who's played by Sally Field. I think that's a pretty good performance too. Yeah, I found that material less interesting overall. It's just kind of like a side plot. It's like a C plot. Yeah, it's mostly thematic counterweight because his relationship, it's weird. It's like his relationship with Mary Todd, or I guess Mary Todd Lincoln at this point, is very like a uh, partnership that they kind of have to be together and work together because that's what they are. Whereas his relationship with politics is much more intimate and it's like very much like where his heart is. And so to me, I think that was an intentional juxtaposition in the writing. It's like you have this fraught relationship with your family where it's kind of like a necessary job almost that you have to deal with all of that and handle those matters. But like his real heart his real family is his his political allies and how it it almost is like i don't know we would say you'd rather have someone who's a family man like that's typically how heroes are portrayed it's definitely like not a 100 percent heroic and 
warm and sappy depiction of Lincoln. Like he's got a little bit of prickle. They basically he's like, yeah, I don't care that I'm bribing these Democrats. Just get them to vote for me, which definitely raises some eyebrows, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess he did what he had to do, but he definitely crossed some lines at times, you know, suspended habeas corpus. And he has this whole speech that he makes about how, like, how do you take prisoners of war from or, you know, how do you treat the Confederacy when they consider themselves to be an enemy country? But I, at least on paper, don't consider that because that would give credence to their argument. They're just part of this country. But like to have a war and have things be on the up and up and like traditional diplomatical is it's hard. That actually is something uh, that reminds me of something. I took a course on American history. Well, really, I listened to a lecture series that was a course and they had a guest lecture just for the Civil War segments. This is um, one of the, the learning company's great courses. I don't know if you've ever listened to one of those, Brian. I wanted to subscribe at one point, but it was like pretty expensive. I thought it would just be like podcasts. I feel like, I don't know, I can learn enough from free podcasts to not do it. But I was interested. The ones I've done have been really good. And, and for me, at least better than just an, an a person talking in a podcast because they're like college educated professors you know who their their whole job is teaching dum-dums like me about their their topic but anyways i did one on on american history and it basically covered the entire american history and the civil war guy pointed out you know when you learn about the civil war today you learn about all the structural advantages that the north had they had an established national army they had factories. They had all this stuff that gave them a big advantage, whereas the South was kind of scrappy and they were like doing it by their bootstraps. So of course they were going to lose, but it was like, how long could they resist? But the really important thing is that if you think about the victory conditions, it's the opposite. Exactly. Because the South doesn't need to conquer the North. They don't need to come up and take it all over. It's, It's like the American Revolution. Like, we don't have to go to England and take over England. We just have to make them so fed up that they stop coming over here. Exactly, yeah. And especially when they took a lot of the military strength that had been a part of the U.S.'s military. Right. Lee was the most promising, like, officer. Uh, He he was, like, the leader in the uh, Mexican-American War in the 1840s. He was a big deal on the American side. So I had never really thought about it from that angle. And, you know, it really is not hard to see like a version where you have someone who's a lot less strategic and smart than Lincoln at the helm, basically having an extremely different outcome for the the Civil War. Right. Also, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is here. He plays the eldest son. He gets, Mm -hmm. you know, some decently uh, prominent scenes. There's a grody one where, because he wants to join the army. He wants to be a man and fight in the war before it's over. And uh, his mom doesn't want that because they've lost a kid already, not in the war, just of like old timey disease. But I think poetically, I got sick from an old timey disease at Lincoln's first inauguration, I think it was. Or like he went there and got worse because of it or something. And so it's like, Lincoln has sacrificed his family life, like almost literally, to keep his politics alive. Oh, man. You're making some great observations. But yeah, 
another of the lines that is often in my mind is Lincoln yells at Mary Todd. He says, I should have clapped you in the madhouse. <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I, I don't know, more so than some of these other actors. I just have a hard time as seeing anyone other than Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's like, dude, what do you, how come Joseph Gordon-Levitt's here in the Civil War, dude? Go, no, that's not right. <laughs> This time I was thinking of uh, his performance in The Night Before, the Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah. And in the start of that movie, he's like a waiter at a cocktail party. And his boss says, why aren't you making your elf face? And he does this goofy little smile. He <laughs> says, there you go. Have you seen the movie 50-50? No. So it stars Seth Rogen and, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And it came out around 2010. I think it was 2011 or 2012. And it's uh, a dramedy where the lead, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, gets cancer. And, I mean, he's bantering with Seth Rogen the whole time. So I kept expecting Seth Rogen to pop up in uh, Lincoln. Like, that would have been out of the blue if Seth Rogen had been there. You know, he'd been uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's buddy. He just showed up at the White House or something. Man, I would have liked to see Seth Rogen in, like, a very serious, uh, like, a you know, a lawmaker well, he was in Fablemans as... That's right. Prominent in that one. Yeah. There's some synergy between Lincoln and Fablemans. I might pick 50-50 for the pod sometime. I recalled liking it with a few mixed thoughts, but I would definitely want to revisit it. But things are progressing, and Lincoln's got his team on the ground trying to sway Democratic votes, you know, offering them different positions and things. And meanwhile, this uh, meeting has been set up. The Confederate delegates are coming up. So Lincoln has to, like, decide which way does he want it to go. Is, does he want the votes and the amendment, or does he want to end the war? And things come to a head. There's this battle that's happening in the midst of it all. It's the uh, Battle of Wilmington, which I guess is in North Carolina. I... Not the biggest Civil War buff, but I think that's what they're talking about. So Lincoln goes with his Secretary of War, Stanton, the guy with the big bushy beard, and they go into the telegraph office. And my professor from William & Mary says, news coming in from the front. And he hands Lincoln like this uh, readout, you know, this Morse code thing that's got all the casualties from the battle and everybody has the oh grim realization scene reading the casualty list that you see you know going all the way back to uh, gone with the wind it's like wow this is real stuff you know these aren't just numbers every one of these is a real person mm -hmm. and so then lincoln is struck that he could potentially end this like he could stop any more people from dying and, you know, he's got his son who wants to get thrown into the meat grinder, essentially. And he's like, what do I do here now? And maybe I should do what Preston Blair is telling me to do, which is go and sit down with these Confederates. Loath as I am to do that, it could stop the killing. Right. It's like a lot of ends versus means type stuff. It's like the same thing with the bribery. It's like, well, it was to end slavery, so you can kind of excuse it. But like, what about take it one step further? Here you have literally it's the still the bloodiest war in American history, if I'm not mistaken. And everybody's talking about how they had a son who 
died or got maimed on the battlefield and like all you had to do is sign your name and that would be completely done or do you like string it out so that you can get this amendment passed it's like it definitely doesn't make it an easy decision yeah and so lincoln has like two changes of thought he's got like one scene where he's sitting in his bedroom and thinking over the the casualties and decides yeah you know what I am going to meet with those guys. And then he heads back to the telegraph office where now it's just Adam Driver manning alone. Well, I think there's some other young dude in there with him, but like it's bare bones, skeleton crew telegraph office now. Uh, Professor Ruffin is not there. And Lincoln has another conversation where he's talking to Adam Driver and he, he, he like types out the whole message. Yes, bring the delegates here and we'll have a sit down. And then he's like, no, no, I, <laughs> I'm right. We need to have this amendment. It's important. And so I'm going to artificially delay the Confederate delegates. I'm going to make sure that it takes them a long time to get here. So mm -hmm. that Preston Blair can still be satisfied that actually they are coming, but they're not going to be here in time to do anything. It's like the, the 10 count in... Uh undisputed three the one where it's <laughs> it like takes forever yeah it's like oh he's got to wait 10 seconds but hold on let's drag it out as long as we can but nobody wraps a shit rag around a bleeding wound i don't know some of that amputation stuff gets pretty damn close it's, i guess that's true when joseph gordon levitt's walking around the the hospital that's the best joseph gordon levitt scene is when he's horrified by a stack of slithering limbs getting dumped <laughs> down into a pit yeah. Uh, but all, everything is coming into place for this vote to happen now. It's coming down to the wire, but like Lincoln actually goes out into the field himself and is personally meeting with these last couple people to try to sway him over. And so then, oh, one thing that happens, it's a little complicated, but the Thaddeus Stevens plot is... So he's the, the leader of the radicals and kind of a plan that racist young Lee Pace hits on is like, this guy is so frothing that he, I could get him to say something that will alienate the people. Like if I get him to admit that he is an extremist for racial equality, then that's going to put off, you know, enough of the hoi polloi and their representatives in Congress that that will ultimately help us, the racist side. And so he he's going to go and agitate Stevens. But then a couple of Stevens's guys or, you know, people on that side of the aisle uh, out beyond Congress are like, listen, you need to temper your views, which is kind of a theme of this whole thing, is like you got to keep the ends in mind and not your own petty grievances and, like, your specific flavor of politics. Because think about the result you want to achieve in the end. Right. I mean, this is still very, very much a theme in politics. There was a mild controversy, at least mild relative to what you see in Washington, where Democrats in 2020, um, maybe it was actually 22, I can't remember, but they actually ended up funding a lot of far-right candidates in primaries who are further from their views. Well, why would you do that? It's because 
they'd be less popular in the general election. So it's like a very counterintuitive thing that like you, if you get someone to advocate on the far end of the spectrum, then that can alienate the so-called centrists, you know? Interesting. Yeah. It's like, you got to play up appealing to your base and then you got to, once you win the primary, you got to moderate. Exactly. You gotta win it the always general. goes that way. Right. But, uh, so the people who are trying to temper Thaddeus, they say, say that you believe only in equality before the law, not equality in all things. And so then Stevens, who like prior to this has talked to Lincoln about what he wants reconstruction to be. And he's like, don't even let former Confederates vote, take away all their property, give all of it to the former slaves and like completely remake the status quo. That's what he wants, but he can't say that because that's too extreme for the day. And one thing I like about this movie, by the way, is that I don't know how true this was, but it, it paints Lincoln as this guy that everyone will speak their mind to. It's like he's just kind of this inviting presence. He doesn't snap at you, really. It's like, say what you're thinking. And basically everyone does. Like even there's like soldiers and stuff who are like sn sniping at him. Yeah, I I'm going to talk about that a little more in a little while. But yeah, I wasn't sure if the like the privates would mouth off to Lincoln. <laughs> but um even they've got a policy where like common folk can come in there's like white house visiting day and you can talk to the president and i don't know how real that was certainly it's not real today i want this yeah yeah and you may have what happened to lincoln to blame for that <laughs> so the the moment comes that uh wood the lee pace character is like so tell us what you really think, Thaddeus Stevens. I've got all the journalists here to write down every single word. Races are equal, aren't they, huh? <laughs> and so then uh, at first, um, Stevens like looks around and then just very monotone, he says, I only believe in equality before the law, not equality in all things. And like people are... His guys, Stevens's side, the radicals are like very dismayed by this. But then Thaddeus Stevens gives this great speech where he says, like, it's obvious that not everyone is equal because some people are stupid like you, Fernando Wood. <laughs> but he says it much more eloquently than that. I know. He's yeah. like, some people have cold, pallid slime in their veins instead of hot red blood. <laughs> you colossal dingus, you're proof that not everyone is equal. Right. So you're such a jackass. And of course, this follow-up that he gives makes it clear to the viewer watching the movie where he really stands. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet his guys still come up to him after the vote and they're like, how dare you, Thaddeus Stevens? How dare you say that? And it's like, um, did you not understand what he was doing? Well, I liked that he said this this moment because, I mean, you're right. It was kind of ridiculous that anyone would have any doubt what was going on. But I liked this follow up because he's like, yeah, I would. I forget exactly what the wording There's is. There's just about nothing I wouldn't say. Say anything to denigrate myself. Yeah. To, to get freedom for the slaves. Right. So, And yeah, so then a couple days or a week later, they sit down in the house to vote. Are we going to uh, 
send this amendment on to the states for ratification. Which, by the way, like, I think three quarters of states have to ratify amendments for them to be added to the Constitution. Think about today, like, what would three quarters of the states agree on? Nothing. Yeah. I think it's telling that we, I mean, when was the 27th Amendment? It's It's been a while since there's been an amendment. Right. And even that was just a ticky-tacky amendment. Right. Although, <laughs> one thing that I thought was kind of goofy here, and it kind of made sense within the story, you need to like fully tie together the two parallel threads. They're like, it's time to vote. But then someone says, but wait, isn't there a peace treaty in negotiation? And so they literally all run over to the White House. Like, is there a peace treaty in negotiation? And Lincoln says, not right now. And then they all run back and they're like, okay, well, not right now. I guess we're going to vote. I laughed out loud at this part <laughs> in the movie theater because, I mean, one, James Spader is like this doughy character with mutton chops and he's all out of breath from having just run from the <laughs> Capitol to the White House. But also, you can't just run into the doors of the White House. Like, that's not <laughs> something you can do now. Yeah. You know, this big, portly, out-of-breath guy just sprinting across the White House lawn. Maniac. <laughs> and busting in the doors. He wouldn't be running so fast if he didn't have something important to tell the president. We gotta let him through. <laughs> I, I That's a Simpson quote. There's some variation on that. It's like uh, when someone's speeding and Chief Wiggum says, let him go. He wouldn't be speeding if he didn't have somewhere important to be. <laughs> or something like that. Man, there's... So many good lines in that show, but particularly with the police, when <laughs> they say, we're on the lookout for a maroon Stutz Bearcat, and Mr. Burns goes by in this, you know, super obscure antique car, and Wiggum says, <laughs> that was really more of a burgundy. <laughs> Suspect is hatless, repeat, hatless. I'm directly under the Earth's sun. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they vote, as you said, all these different Congress people get to stand up, yay, nay, and they go through all the roll, and I think by two votes or something, the amendment passes. Yeah, and it's interesting, you see people like trying to tally it out. Right, everybody's keeping score, and it's it's like all the different places that we've seen so far, so there's like people in the telegraph office keeping a tally, and... Mary Todd's up in the balcony of the Capitol and she's got a tally going and Lincoln's in like his sitting room with his young son and he's doing a tally. So is he doing a tally or is he just playing with his son? I, I, I was having trouble following exactly what he was doing there because I thought it would have been interesting if that he finally the time that he made time for his son, for his family, was when the actual vote was going down. He got them there and now he's he's hanging out with him. Right. But it did seem like he was listening to something. So I wasn't sure. Yeah, so he didn't have the checklist. Like, it wasn't so literal, but I'm sure he had, like, an abacus going in his brain. Mm -hmm. Because then when it passes, they ring the church bells, and then you can hear it from, like, the White House. I, I like this kind of montage, like, the when they can make voting dramatic. And this is where you get the, they do the roll call, and people have different ways to say yay or nay. It's mm -hmm. kind of fun. And like every once in a while, somebody will abstain and everybody groans because that throws off the, the count. Yeah. Boo! <laughs> and something that's interesting that I didn't know, and I still am not sure it's 100% confirmed, but Thaddeus Stevens takes the bill home and he reads it to 
his wife or his common law wife, the woman that he lives with, and it's a black woman. Actually, it's Reba the male lady from Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh, oh, wow, interesting. Talk about a uh, diversity in your what you're playing there, but right, I right. thought this was real cornball. It's like he takes the literal amendment and they and oh wow, he's got a black wife. No wonder. It's like yeah, is this real? And uh, I guess there is speculation that that was going on. I mean, her she was ostensibly his housekeeper, but like people in the neighborhood figured they were together. And they, he actually, like, they lie down in bed together. Also, he takes off his wig then. And it was pretty funny. He's like, oh, bald Tommy Lee Jones here. But then they, uh, it, while they're lying in bed, they dramatically read to each other the amendment, which is just kind of a funny image. Yeah, there's that's my main thing about this movie that's a, maybe a not so good, is that some of the themes, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the race stuff, are very on the nose. Um, but, I mean, it's the... It's the crux of what's going on, so it makes sense. Yeah. And I thought it could have been worse. There are some moments where it's bad. Like, there's one speech late in the movie where Lincoln gets mad about racism is bad. But in general, it's much more about, like, the wheeling and dealing and politicking and stuff than it is about moral high ground. Although they always pepper that in with the, uh, the Tommy Lee Jones character and the Lee Pace character. The main instance of it to me is that the younger Lincoln's son, Tad, he's always like he's always sitting around reading about slaves or looking at pictures of slaves or asking questions about slaves. And it's like, man, you're a really one note kid, Tad. Yeah, that's true. But the amendments passed and now Lincoln goes and he meets with the Confederate delegates. General Grant has been like keeping them held up in a riverboat which i guess uh grant really did have a like a mobile headquarters on a riverboat uh this incident was called the hampton roads conference where they met with the confederate delegates and it blew my mind the first time i watched it because what lincoln is talking to alexander stevens the vice president of the confederacy when did this ever happen hmm. but lincoln basically walks and he says you guys are done the amendments passed Go home, cry about it. Some vindication there. He's like, you can either surrender now or, or fight to the end. And then it jumps ahead to Appomattox Courthouse three months later. And Lincoln, like, rides his horse through the corpses stacked like cordwood just to show that, you know, mm -hmm. war is hell. One interesting thing, well... There's, there's a lot that's interesting about the Civil War, but uh, the Appomattox Courthouse thing, something I just recently learned, is that one of the generals on the Union side was a Native American, and that was the only Native American general on either side. Hmm. And apparently, well, I, I didn't know that before, and so this time watching it, I was looking for him, and he is there. There's like a Native American guy standing there. But he didn't say anything. Allegedly, the story goes that at uh, the meeting at Appomattox Courthouse, uh, Lee signs the surrender and he's looking around. He sees the uh, the Indian general and he says, well, I'm glad at least one real American is here. Uh... And the the native general, he says, we are all Americans. OK. Good line. But hey, now the war is over. And Lincoln can get back to governing in his second term. 
And there's a scene where he's goes on a carriage ride with Mary Todd and he's talking about all the things he wants to do in the second Lincoln administration. Right after they get back from the theater. Yeah. Maybe they'll go sailing on the boat. They'll live forever. Like in The Simpsons. When uh, the old the cop, veteran cop is going to go on one last mission. But he was two weeks from retirement. Yeah, exactly. It is. It does do a good job of like making you infuriated, though. It's like it really does make Lincoln seem impressive as like a leader and an organizer and a visionary for like how to bring progress about in America. And it just makes you wonder like what. I mean, obviously, we don't need to deconstruct all of, well, reconstruction, I guess, um, and everything that happened after that. But, like, it was a shit show, to say the least. And it probably could have been at least a little bit better if Lincoln had lived. Although, on the other hand, he he might have soured himself, you know. It's like, you either die the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And maybe he would have made key mistakes and that would have tarnished his legacy. Yep, we've referenced two... Two-Face movies now. <laughs> and that's Lincoln from 2012, from Steven Spielberg. Like you said, it's it's a long movie, but it balances all its parts pretty well. Yeah, I agree. Do you have any other thoughts that you wanted to call out before we get down to doing our own vote of sorts? Yeah, the one other uh, performance I wanted to call out, I really liked the guy who played the Secretary of State. What was that guy's name? Let me look it up right now. Seward is the character, but yeah, what is that actor's name? Because he is good and he's got a beefy part. David Strathern. And he's been in a couple of things. I'm trying to remember um, what he was most recently in that I saw him in. Because um, it was something not too long ago. Yep. Um, did you know that Seward also got attacked on the night that Lincoln got assassinated. Yeah, I was reading about it after I watched the movie, so it was supposed to be a three-part attack. Right, they were supposed to get the vice president too, but I think uh, Azerot chickened out. I heard that he just got drunk, and as part of chickening out, just kind of sat around instead of doing it. Too, hashtag <laughs> too real. You know, you say you're going to do something, but then you just sit around and, and you drink. Uh, well, just one other thing that I wanted to shout out. I've said most of my piece already. Um, I think the lighting is cool. We talked about the cinematography. And in this movie, I guess maybe because there's just less going on physically than a lot of films, and it's a lot of people talking, you, you have more of the opportunity to pay attention to the production elements like the lighting. And uh, they were just very conscious about how they lit these these different rooms, uh, particularly like Lincoln. He'll go and sit in the dark room in the White House and, you know, the, the sun rays will play on his shoulders. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. You got that Kaminsky uh, lighting going on for sure. But I think I am ready to discuss, Dan, whether it's good. Yeah, let's do it. So I'll read us in. Is it good? is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So I guess I will go first and I will say, is Lincoln good? And I'm going to give Lincoln a six out of eight, a very good, um, very impressively made film. A, a little dry for me, just 
for it to be an all timer. It's got some corny stuff in it, too, uh, but also some really terrific stuff and some great scenes. Love the acting. Great, great lead performance. Um, some really rousing scenes. And obviously, it's just very intrinsically interesting material, even if it gets played very much as like a political thriller rather than like a historical biography type thing, which I actually think is interesting. I think I, I was more intrigued by it because it was so focused on a specific time period and a specific series of events rather than Lincoln's entire life. Like I think a two and a half hour version of that would have felt just longer and more laborious than, than this did almost counterintuitively. Cause it's like more focused or something. Um, but anyways, uh, very good. Probably on the upper half of very good. I liked it. Brian, what about you? Is Lincoln good? I'm pretty much right there with you, Dan. I was watching it. It's, I think I'm going to verge just over the bar into the seven. Exceptionally good. Just because it's a feat that it manages so many different characters and so many different threads and still manages to keep things on track. It manages to be like a cohesive, structured thing that you can follow. And it still manages to be funny at times and poignant and like still relatable today. And uh, everybody has important business that they do. And it really highlights that the the system, the like Republican form of government in the sense of we have the bicameral legislature and all these checks and balances and everything that everybody's playing their part in the grand stage of politics. Cool. So, yeah. Yeah, just into seven. Well, this was a good one. I'm glad to have finally caught up with this one. Definitely uh, enjoy catching up with Spielberg whenever I can. I still haven't seen West Side Story. I really want to see the 21 West Side Story. Oh, yeah. That was good. (laughs) Not really here or there. I know we got to be moving on. But uh, in 20... 21 into 2022 i guess like in the winter time last year i went to the movie theater which i hadn't done in a long time like the whole pandemic uh and i saw spider-man with all the spider-man in it and i was like wow that was great i haven't been to the movies in a long time i got to do it again and so then i went back a couple days later and i saw west side story the Spielberg one, I thought, wow, that was really good. I got to go back again, see another movie. And then I realized that they didn't really yeah. have anything else I wanted to see. And it's like, this is something that has diminishing returns because there's only so many movies out at once. Right. But what is coming up next on the docket, Dan? Yeah, so um, what I would like to do, Brian, is um, we've done violent ends as a kind of recurring bit in the past where we take two movies that have similar premises, but different outcomes, usually one of which is dark and one of which is cheery. And um, I'm going to asterisk this violent ends because one of the discussion points I like to bring up is, is this a violent ends? Is this, is this a good fit for that? And, but it is a double bill of two movies with some related themes, but looked at in very different ways. And those two movies are, Babylon by Damien Chazelle. That was a 2022 film. I've been catching up with 
Damien Chazelle's filmography and kind of reevaluated La La Land, which is the one that we talked about in the past. So I can also give an update on that. And the second being Singing in the Rain, uh, the classic musical. So I think, Brian, you'll see ways that they're similar. And I think, Brian, you will see ways that they're different. So um, are you up for for watching both of those this week? Yeah, that sounds like fun. Definitely, from what I've heard, there's going to be a contrast. I haven't seen Babylon yet, but just from the trailer, the very first trailer that I saw, it's like, you know, it's got Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie and Tobey Maguire looking like a goblin or something. It's like, I got to <laughs> yeah. see this movie. So uh, thanks for giving me an excuse. Well, interestingly, we can talk more about this. The movie that it most reminds me of is another movie we've talked about, not La La Land, but um, Boogie Nights. So we can also talk about some boogie nights comparisons to Bob to Babylon. So anyways, Brian, that that should be fun. And, uh, as always, thank you for, for chatting with me. Everyone can come find us on the discord at the goods film We'd love to hear from you and yeah, uh, we will see you next time. Bye everybody. Bye.